Hi everyone, welcome back to the Martin V Classic Disco and Dance Show. Today we're going to be taking a second look at some high energy sounds from the 1980s, this time focusing on some of the celebrities who unexpectedly ended up releasing high energy dance tracks. Yes, just as we had celebrity disco towards the end of the disco era, we also had celebrity high energy, mostly towards the end of the 1980s. And of course, no Celebrity Hall of Fame would be complete without regular guest and popular media commentator Jack Slaymaker, who will be joining me after the music, and we're going to take apart some of these tracks in a no-holds-barred discussion. You said you loved me, or were you just being kind? Kind, 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 kind.
Touch me. 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 Touch me.
Okay, so that is the five celebrity high-energy tracks that we're featuring today. Um, let's just have a quick rundown of what we've heard. So, first of all, it was Lisa. I would say Lisa, Liza Minnelli, with Losing My Mind from 1989. Uh, next was none other than Cliff Richard with I Just Don't Have the Heart, also from 1989. The third track was Olivia Newton-John with The Rumour from 1988. And then Raquel Welch with This Girl's Back in Town from 1987. And finally, Mandy Smith, also from 1987 with I Just Can't Wait. So I've got Jack Slaymaker with me. Hello, Jack. Hello, Martin. How are you? I'm very well. And I guess uh, having listened to those five tracks, um, the first question, which is, a, I guess, a rhetorical question, really, is are, are we dealing with a celebrity high-energy hall of fame or a hall of shame? <laughs> That's hilarious. And definitely shame for the most part, let's face it. Probably, um, yeah, yeah, probably. It, it, it has echoes of celebrity disco um, in terms of the varying levels of quality that have been kind of thrown out towards the end of, end of the uh, genre. It, it really does, doesn't it? And it, it was only when we did our previous show about the sort of beginning of high energy that it even dawned on me that celebrity high energy was a thing. But um, before we get into talking about the individual tracks, I just wanted to get your thoughts on how High Energy has evolved from what we heard in the previous show when we, we looked at some of the early stuff to what we've heard just now, which, leaving aside the fact it was performed by celebrities, was also very typical of the sort of late 80s High Energy sound. So how did you think the two compared? Um, well, to be honest, I think it seems to largely have gotten a lot more synthy, which makes a lot of sense, really, when you when you consider um, the evolution of, of how kind of backing tracks and music went across the 80s. Uh, you lose a lot of what we have traditionally seen in that kind of dance thing um, and, and that kind of backing track of the funk and soul. But also, it becomes a lot more. It's become a lot more generic. Um, in terms of, it's almost just like an 80s pop record in, in many ways with, uh, with a slightly more distinctive <coughs> sound. It, it doesn't feel, I know it doesn't feel like it belongs to any one particular place. Like the, the early stuff, but the more I listen to it, the more I feel, okay, yeah, that feels like high energy. I can feel the disco, I see the disco, I can see how high energy evolved out of that. Later high energy, I just don't get that. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's true. I mean, my, my feeling is the earlier high energy, particularly sort of, um, you remember we said that sort of post about 1982-83, it kind of settled down into this very yeah. specific sound. Yeah. Um, and I think that was quite a narrowly defined sound as well, wasn't it? You, you knew if something was high energy and you knew if something was not because it was so distinctive. And I think, as you say, later in the 80s, I, I definitely think there was a broadening out of the sound it got a lot more poppy it did get a lot more mainstream so that kind of explains that part of it and i think it also started to draw from other sources as well i certainly found in many of these five tracks there were certain a little bit of a foretaste perhaps of uh, some elements of dance music that was still to come in the 90s sure i think the raquel welch one specifically i think there's yeah it, i think it became more mainstream in its sound and less narrowly focused but i think maybe i'm just putting a more positive spin on on what you've said do, do you think <laughs> I don't know. Doom and gloom and absolute, you know, tragedy. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm not always known for putting a positive spin on things, it has to be said, but uh, maybe that's what I have done. And, and the other thing I just wanted to briefly uh, talk about before we got in the tracks was one thing that did strike me listening to these five was that any kind of connection with soul and funk seems to have been almost 
were completely lost, I, w- I would say. There are a number of schools of thought on this, and there is a school of thought that says, first of all, there was soul and funk, and then that just sort of turned into disco, which I've never really subscribed to, because I personally think soul and funk are but one of the numerous influences on disco, and not even necessarily the most important ones. But I, I did feel with these five tracks, there was barely a trace of soul or funk to be heard. What did you think? No, I'd agree for the most part. Um, but I think that's that natural progression out of things, though, the evolution of the sound. Um, and part of that just comes with with the increased use of things like synthesizers. That's not to say that you can't use any sort of synthesizer to create a funk or, or soul sound, because of course you can. But the, the way that they were used was not in line with what we would traditionally know as soul and funk. And where disco had kind of taken parts of that, as you said, as part of a wider thing, and high energy then evolved out of disco, it is diluted further. So I think, for me, when I was listening to the Mandy song, the very, very early introduction, it almost sounded like there was that, that, that kind of echo of a kind of funk background starting to emerge, and then that died off really quickly. So. I just think it's part of that general evolution um, mm. of the musical sound and, and the technology that came with it. I, I think long term, I agree. I think they were really important for, for disco, but I think as even as disco went on, as we as we saw some of the, the songs in um, in later disco, they, you know the, the influence was dwindling even then. You know, and obviously, what you go a decade later with a whole new genre of dance music, and it's um, it's wildly different. It's gone. It's yeah, gone. it's gone. But also, I mean, you could you could read even more into it, couldn't you? That kind of like the hedonism of the '80s and stuff like that, you know, and looking at whether things like soul and funk even had a part to play in that kind of society, because all all media reflects what's happening in the in the world and wider society at the time, whether it's music, films, you know, whatever, TV. So, you know, the music the music will reflect that and. Yeah. You could probably go as far to say that actually the 80s didn't have a soul in that traditional sense um, and was was more hedonistic in, in its approach to kind of media and, and societal values. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really think the 80s was probably a high point for soul and funk. So um, I suppose it, it figures that it wouldn't really uh, be heard as an influence in other music forms. Anyway, let's get on to the five tracks. So uh, we've got uh, Liza Minnelli and Losing My Mind from 1989. I mean, you couldn't really imagine a track which ticked more <laughs> ticked more gay-friendly boxes. I mean, you, you've got the daughter of gay icon Judy Garland performing a high-energy song written and produced by two gay men a.k.a. the Pet Shop Boys. So it, it, it was a very gay affair in many ways, but having said that, it was a massive mainstream hit for Liza. What did you think of it? I had so many mixed emotions about this song. I I don't mind the song. I don't... I think the Pet Shop Boys did Liza dirty because she's basically relegated to what feels almost like a backing singer of that kind of... Um, of the song and obviously the other gay aspect is it's from a musical the song's from a musical the gay layers keep adding oh, they um, do I think it was um, a Sondheim I, song wasn't yeah, it yeah what from um, Follies yeah Follies um, oh, okay 70s um, the backing track was so it was very Pet Shop Boys and I'm all for producers having a certain sound that identifies it as kind of theirs. I mean, you could even to a point say that with like Marauder and stuff like that, you know, so you got to a point, but it was much more subtle. It was about the way they did things. The Pet Shop Boys, I have an issue with because there's no deviation from the sound. It is literally like, this is what you are getting and you will just sing along to what I've given you. And that's what it feels like. It, it feels like a great disrespect to the artists that work with them, including Liza Minnelli, because they're almost like an afterthought. It didn't have to be Liza on there. You know, it could have been anyone. And it, you know, it would have, it would have made no difference because they made the backing track the focus. I can see what you mean. So really, you you think you know, they just kind of put Liza through the great 
Pet Shop Boys sausage machine, and she came out <laughs> looking like a sausage. Oh, phrasing. But yes, yeah. Um, yeah, to be honest, I do. I, I don't think that they, um, they were very like respectful to the artist. And, you know, the, the song itself, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. It's very 80s. But I, I just, you know, there are a lot of issues with it for me. But as you said, it, it created a great chart hit. Um, you know, I think number six in the UK singles chart, number two in Ireland and, and number seven in Spain. It did do very well. And I mean, it's one of those occasions where one would love to have Liza's take on it, which we were do not have the budget to obtain on this show. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, there's no doubt about it. It was a tremendous commercial success for her, probably at a time when her career was, you, you might say, treading water a bit. I mean, she's one of these people that, you know, I've looked through her back catalogues of both films and recordings. And I mean, she's done a hell of a lot of both. Yeah. Although I think she's someone who, despite doing so much, is really only ever going to be remembered for being in Cabaret. Yeah, I'd agree. The, the two things that, that Paul Liza will be known for are the kind of the, the funny vocal inflections uh, and Cabaret, and maybe the Julie Darwin's daughter. Um, yeah. And maybe for doing a Pet Shop Boys album. Oh, maybe. I maybe. mean, I want to be remembered for that, but there we go. I, I only say that simply because it was so successful commercially. Yeah. I, I mean, interestingly, around the same time as they were working with Liza, the Pet Shop Boys were also engineering a bit of a comeback with Dusty Springfield, one of your favourite performers. <laughs> and I will say that if you listen to the stuff they did with Dusty Springfield, I think they handled her much more sensitively. You know, she kind of came through a lot more strongly as herself on the tracks and that they did sound like less of Pet Shop Boys tracks with Dusty doing some vocals and, and more like Dusty Springfield tracks. So I think they were capable of handling um, established artists a bit more generously, but they just didn't really do it with Liza Minnelli for whatever reason. I haven't listened to all the other stuff on the album they did with her, which is where this track comes from. Um, the album was called Results. Uh, I think it was all more or less in a similar vein, though. I, I know another track on it was a cover of Yvonne Elliman's Love Pains. Um, I listened I, to a couple of other tracks, and to be honest, my opinion was not changed. Didn't improve, yeah, didn't improve. So, mm, a, bit, a bit of a thumbs down for you, then, for, for that one. Yeah. Well, then, we've got the very well-known performer, Cliff Richard. Very much a surprise entry, I think, in, in the high-energy celebrity hall of fame or shame, with a Stock Aitken and Waterman production, I Just Don't Have the Heart. How did you how did you find this track? What did you make yeah, of it? I, I did not like it. I can literally like I, I sat there. I always like to write a couple of notes as as some prompts to kind of go back and have another listen to it. And I can literally read you what I've written. I put no, just no. I think the track is okay, Cliff wrecks it, and it reeks of a very cookie cutter stock ache and a waterman vibe. How it got to number three in the UK charts, I don't know. Those are literally what I've written, and I stand by it. It's terrible. Hate it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, another massive commercial success for him. So, you know, it didn't do him any harm from that point of view. But it does rather beg the question of why he did it at all. Because, you know, when I went through his discography, although the late 80s was well past what you might call his main career. He's one of these people that perhaps his main career never really stopped because he was still going strong, you, you know, without having to do these collaborations. So it, it does make you wonder why he did it, especially with um, a song, which I, I will freely admit, it, it is very much sort of late 80s, high energy by numbers, isn't it? Very much so. I, I just... 
I don't think his voice or his vocal style lends itself to, to this particular sort of music, even if it is the really watered-down pop version that we were getting by the late 80s. It, it was just a bit jarring for me. And, and for, as a point, like, I, don't, I don't mind Cliff Richard. Like, there, are, mm. there are quite a few songs that are kind of campy fun that I love, like things like Living Dole and um, Wired for Sound. Like, I, I, I love stuff like that. You know, it, it's a good laugh. It is what it is, but not, not here. This was not something that I enjoyed. I mean, you could imagine this song perhaps being done uh, by Rick Astley. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, probably would have been better. Uh, yeah. So really, natural success, but yeah, you you you've got the same criticism of this one as the Liza track. Yeah, uh, like you, you've got two established performers who were kind of not treated well by their producers of the moment. Yeah, yeah. I I'd, I'd agree with that. Two songs that are kind of okay, I guess. That I I would l- rather listen to the Liza one than this one, to be fair. Um, really? But yeah, just mm. just not not. I just yeah, not for me. I mean, given that they were from the same year, I think they were often to be found within the same DJ set, actually, in those days. <laughs> As indeed was was track number three, because we're we're going on to um, Olivia Newton-John. Um, yeah, now interesting with her because it was only after i started focusing on her i thought well actually she could have almost been included in the celebrity disco program as well as the celebrity high energy program because of course she did do the 1981 track physical but i think the only reason i never thought of including her in celebrity disco was i think to not do a celebrity disco track until 1981 means you're a little bit late to that particular party um and also i never really thought of physical as a disco song it seemed more a sort of pop rock song yeah i'd agree with that i i would never i I, until literally until you said it just then I, i mean i would never have considered that to be disco I mean, it was a very clever song, wasn't it, physical? Because yeah. you, you've got the sort of double entendre of the lyrics. And of course, it just ticked so many boxes within the context of 1981. But uh, that was then. And the rumour was 1988. And interestingly, after physical, actually, when you, when you look at Olivia Newton-John's discography, her career rather cooled over the remainder of the 80s. Um, and in fact, you from today's perspective you you could really say that physical was her last sort of major global hit uh, she she'd also taken some time off i think between physical and the rumor to uh, for the birth of her daughter so you know i i guess she sort of felt she was at a little bit of a uh, decision point in her career and uh she teamed up with Elton John to do the rumor, who uh, I think wrote, produced, and also uh, does backing, backing vocals on it. Personally, and played the digital piano. Uh, did he? So, uh, yeah. you know, well, you know, he, he was the Swiss army knife of music, you could say, wasn't he? <laughs> um, so he, he did everything, really, except be Olivia Newton-John. Yeah. I mean, with this track, I, I, I thought it was kind of fun. Like, it was... I didn't love it, because it, I, I just kind of feel like it was, again, it was it was almost like a paint-by-numbers. But in terms of Olivia Newton-John came through, the lyrics were good, the the track is kind of fun, high-energy, poppy track, isn't it? Um, it's just It just doesn't feel like it's anything special, so it just kind of falls flat a little bit. Like, it's... It's not a bad song, it's just not something to write home about. And I think after her success with Physical, as, as you said, it's um, and, and with how involved Elton John was in the project, it's surprising it didn't pick up a bit more commercial success. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I am surprised because I think it is a good song and I, I think she might have been justified in having quite high hopes for both the song and the album it came from which was also called The Rumour and was also you know had Elton John all over it and yet for some reason it 
basically just went nowhere, uh, which I think was surprising because you know, I think the, the quality of the songs was pretty good. Elton John was a very popular <clears throat> musician at that time. So a little bit of a disappointment, I would imagine, from her point of view. I mean, it got a lot of play in clubs, but I think that was it. Mm. It, it's a shame because, uh, as I said, that at its core, it's not a bad song. I mean, I've certainly heard worse, but um, it's, I, I will say that I didn't really feel like it was anything particularly special. And that, you know, it was a, it was a good song, but that was about as far as I go with it. The lyrics were good. You know I love a lyric. Um, Indeed. I mean, I don't think it fell into the trap of the first two songs. No, I mean, I think it it gave Olivia Newton-John enough scope to kind of be herself on it. But you can definitely tell it's her. You don't listen to it and just think, oh, they could have used anybody for that. It's definitely an Olivia Newton-John track. I don't know if you saw it, um, but uh, they had quite a good video for for this single i saw well to be honest i had it i did i did watch the video with it but i wasn't paying that much attention to it i was mostly just listening to the song to be honest so i'll have to go back and give that a watch and in addition i mean i mean with all of these tracks actually there might be people listening to them today and thinking oh yeah i think i remember those tracks but i don't remember them sounding like that but of course, by the late 80s, multiple mixes of dance tracks were in abundance. When we looked at the early high energy, I mean, you you just, you probably never had more than a couple of different mixes in 1983, but, you know, mixing just exploded over the remainder of the 80s. And I think some of these tracks we're featuring today, you know, they might they might have had about five or six different mixes. It's very difficult, you know, with the passage of time to go back and uh, identify what, what was the definitive one. So not a bad track, probably the best of the three so far, would you agree? Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> Guardedly. Guardedly. Guardedly, guardedly, I would say that I I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then uh, we go on to what I think is the most bizarre of the five, which is the Raquel Welch track, This Girl's Back in Town from 1987. Bizarre in so many ways. Again, I don't think anyone ever expected Raquel Welch to do a high-energy track or or indeed to do any track at all because she had no track record as a recording artist. If you go on to Discogs, basically it's this track and almost nothing else. So there was nothing before this track. There was no follow-up afterwards. In addition to being an actress, I understand she always had a a Las Vegas song and dance act of of some kind. So I think think she sounds fine on this. But the whole thing always just seemed very odd to me. I don't think it got any commercial success. You did hear it at the clubs. Um, What did did you make of it? (laughs) I'm I'm not going to lie. I kind of loved it. It was so it was so weird. But also this, I think, when I really sat down and thought about it, is kind of what I assumed high energy would be before I actually started listening to it and you, you know, we, we delved a bit deeper into it. When you first mentioned high energy, I think this song is what I imagined high energy to be, pretty much, in a nutshell. Just very fast and very strange. I, it's just just from start to finish you're kind of left thinking what on earth was that and i actually quite like that it's kind of madness isn't it from start to finish you you know you don't really know what it's about the backing is very sort of it's actually not massively fast in terms of bpm but the, the way they've done the arrangement it certainly feels quite frenetic doesn't it yeah i think it worked though i i must admit i really liked it it's very high synth very very high synth going back to the idea of soul and funk I think it was very much (laughs) dead by this point Um, it was very very synth Um, but uh, I really liked it as as you said I mean obviously I I don't know much about the RPMs when mixing and stuff like that Um, but the arrangement does feel very fast it certainly made my pulse quicken while I was listening to it and then Again, it has that kind of like that horror sci-fi movie feel that, um, you know, that plays into that 
kind of the lyrics of the strong female leads that are sort of present within the song-ish. As you said, it's not really a song about much. So I know it, for me, it was just a, a convergence of a lot of really weird, random things that actually, for me, just turned into a track which I really, really liked. Oh, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad you, one of the tracks brought you a bit of pleasure. It is just a bizarre thing, isn't it, from start to finish, and it almost got a slightly sort of sinister feel in places. I, I felt as well, but I think all of those things are, as you say, kind of quintessential high end. So I, I think of the five track. It's the track that really does seem to define high energy. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, there may be people listening who don't really know who Raquel Welch is. Basically, she she was an actress of the 1960s and 70s, initially used just as decoration in, in her early films. Uh, I mean, she was a very striking, attractive-looking woman. I think she did graduate onto somewhat more serious roles. I think certainly her main acting career was over by the early 80s. So I, I guess by 87, maybe she was sort of looking around for a bit of diversification. Who knows, really? I mean, whatever the motive for this song, I, I guess she um, didn't think it worked out well enough to do another one. I agree with what you're saying completely. Um, it was, uh, yeah, no follow-up was, was probably perhaps the best in this, in this particular instance. I suppose it was, it was so sort of weird, in a sense. It, what, what could you follow it up with? I mean, you'd have to top it with something even weirder, wouldn't you? Which um, I, I think actually may just be pushing the boundaries of what you would even want to listen to. <laughs> so, so yeah, yes. I, think, I think a one and done for Raquel Welch was, uh, was, the, was the right amount. So then we've got something a bit different to finish off with, a celebrity of a different kind, Mandy Smith, and another Stock Aiken and Waterman song from 1987, I, I Just Can't Wait. Again, for people who don't remember, Mandy Smith became known after her story was splashed over the tabloid press in the 1980s and uh, what what came out was that she'd been having an affair with Rolling Stones band member Bill Wyman since she was 14 and I think he was something like 33 years her senior and I think the press coverage was uh, you can imagine you know I, I think in the 80s tabloid excess was at its height and, and there were not really very many curbs on the excesses so it was pretty sensationalist and not always sympathetic to Mandy who I think was portrayed as a bit of a teenage temptress. It's all a bit of a sad story in some ways because you know she has since claimed that it's it's kind of ruined her life to a degree. Uh, come on to that after we've talked about the music. But I thought this was an interesting track. Now again, now this definitely was not the definitive mix. It was something called the I think the jazzy and breezy mix and cool you know, and breezy, cool and breezy, it's like something like that. Yeah, and I was browsing through the mixes, wondering which one to go for when i was reading the comments to this mix and somebody had said they thought it might have been the best thing stock aiken and waterman ever did and after listening to it i thought you know what it actually might have been i i personally think they did a really good job on this i don't know about you yeah no i i actually really really liked it it was a bit of a surprise success for me i mean there's a lot going on obviously you've got the guitars you've got synths you've got kind of like that early little bit of funk in the beginning and but also you've got that kind of pop stuff that runs through it it's it's a lot to contend with but i think it is mixed really 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 well i mean the only thing there isn't a lot of is mandy to be fair in this particular mix there's not there's not a lot going on there bless her um but the actual track itself i thought was really really good i think it was a really good i think it was really successful yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I definitely felt with this track, although it's actually one of the two oldest ones in, in, in the five, being from 87, I really thought this had a bit of a foretaste of, of more mainstream 90s dance music. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. 
so it was quite forward-looking in its style I, I don't think it really was particularly high energy to be honest but i i included it again for, for the reason that by the late 80s you know the sort of monopoly high energy had enjoyed in many club environments was starting to break apart so within an, an individual dj set you might easily have got something like the mandy smith track thrown in with a lot of high energy stuff and as we've done here so it was a bit funny that Mandy Smith almost seemed to be reduced to a sort of guest appearance on her own record, though, wasn't it? She was barely a sessional singer. <laughs> I, will, I will say, though, that I still think it had a place among some of the high energy because it, it still has that Stock Aitken and Waterman sound to it, which is not terribly out of place within a lot of high energy, is it? I think it worked well with, within the context of, of the other four tracks, to be honest. Interestingly, also, I noticed on the cover of this mix, Mandy Smith was billed as, as simply Mandy. You know, do you think they were perhaps trying to almost disguise who she was, perhaps due to all the negative publicity? Might have been, might have been. May well have been. I mean, I guess, to a point, no publicity is bad publicity when it yeah. comes to music, because people listen to the track even if it's just once to know what the fuss is about. But at the same time if it was really that negative and i wasn't kind of um around for that this track came out in the year i was born so it may well have been it may well have been to disguise yeah who knows it's one of those unanswerable questions at this stage i heard she had the sort of trauma of getting involved with bill wyman which i don't think really reflects very well on him actually no matter how much of a temptress she may or may not have been but at least on the back of that she did actually manage to launch a modest singing and modeling career and in fact her recording career was a little bit more successful in europe than it was in the uk probably because they didn't get the press coverage yeah i mean that may well have been the case Obviously, it's terrible, really. I mean, if something like that happened now, it was just absolutely the press coverage would be so wildly different. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it shows, I suppose, how times have, have really changed. I, I, I'm not sure uh, someone would be able to launch a career on the back of that now, really. I know, they'd be in foul protection. <laughs> I don't know. Like, you, know it's, you would be a, a protected, looked-after child. You wouldn't be, like, yeah. a model. Like, this is, this, is, this is quintessentially 80s, though, isn't it? The glamour, it is. yeah. the hedonism, it's, it's all of that kind of stuff. It, it is. Uh, and I think she probably took a wise decision, uh, you know, after uh, a couple of years to, to step back from the entertainment world. Yeah, definitely. Right. Well, thank you very much, Jack. That was a terrific. We've managed to pull apart the tracks and put one or two of them back together again as well. That's it for today, everyone. So uh, this is Martin V, along with Jack Slaymaker, saying thank you very much for listening and goodbye for now.